Hey, what's up, my people? Welcome to Kickback with Nadem. I hope you're all doing well. And I don't usually do this, but for today's episode, I need to celebrate a milestone as our very first episode actually went out on the 1st of August, 2019. So to celebrate the two years, I want to say thank you, first of all, to the show's producer, Ryan Hale, for making all of this possible. And secondly, I'd like all the members of the Kickback Hive to tell me which episodes have been their favorite and why. And I think that's the key for me. It's the why, as those whys are the reason why we keep recording. So please let me know. The handle is kickback underscore Nadem on Instagram and on Twitter. And if you struggle to remember that because I speak too quickly, the links to those can be found in the show notes. But now to today's show. I think journalism forms a big part of how people look at football. And I'll be honest, at times as a player, I absolutely hated that. But in the end, I just accepted this is how it was and did what many others did in trying to manage your own image. And now look at me, a complete seller, as now I work in the media. But my point anyway, is that I had my own feelings about the industry and the people within it, but I'd never actually asked somebody who'd been in that as the full-time job and what they thought about it overall. But that was until today. And now that's how we arrive at Rory Smith. He's the lead soccer correspondent for the New York Times and frequent contributor for the BBC. And I made sure, and trust me when I say I made sure, to ask him all the questions I'd have loved to have asked back when I was playing. So please enjoy and be sure to let me know what you think. As ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Rory Smith. So I was speaking to my producer and I said, I've got someone coming on from New York Times. And he said, oh, you mean Rory Smith? So you're, you're, you're a big deal, mate. You're a big deal. You so That's I'm, not true. I'm looking forward to this. Right. So, yeah, me too. Are you ready? Cool. To, are you ready to begin? I'm ready. Do you need me to do anything? Do you need me to no, 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 no. I do the intros and outros separately. Okay. All right. So um, today, then, Rory, I want to learn more about how you got to the point of being a soccer correspondent for the New York Times, and that means, unfortunately, for you, you're gonna have to talk about yourself for us. Are you gonna be okay with that? I'll try. You'll try. I'll try. You know, it's it, it, the thing is that it's like I'm always really conscious of this. I've actually been really conscious of this during the Olympics that it's weird talking about yourself. Yeah, like I, I obviously I'm never I'm never interviewed ever, but I always think when when you sit when you sit down with a player and you just ask them loads of questions about about their, like their life and what's this like for you and how do you feel and yeah. you know, how does that make you feel? It's a weird thing to have to do like yeah. to talk about yourself. Yeah. People, most people are quite uneasy with it, and I I am also uneasy with it, so I will try. Okay, okay, I appreciate it. And then once you're done with that, I'd like you to uh, represent basically every football journalist in the whole of the world as I ask questions. <laughs> I've always wanted answered as as of when I was a player. You you okay with that? That bit's easier because I'm yeah happy to speak for my industry. I feel okay. as though I'm, I'm feel as though I'm qualified to be a spokesperson. Okay, that's industry. that's fantastic. Then, but the first um, key thing of note which I discovered was I was trying to get some background, well, a greater background on you because obviously we've worked together on radio and stuff before. And the thing that broke my heart was for somebody who is so good with words. When I go on your Wikipedia page in your personal life section, it says Rory Smith is from Yorkshire. That's it. Can you not edit what? that yourself? What what else do you need to know? Like, like just just which part of Yorkshire, perhaps? Or you know what I mean? Little is, things like that. Th- there is no other relevant information other than someone is from Yorkshire. That is the only thing you need to know about anybody from Yorkshire. Right. And you take that as a good thing. Is that supposed to be yeah, a good yeah, thing yeah. or a bad thing? That's it. That is my that is my favorite. I mean, ha- having a Wikipedia entry still kind of blows my mind a little bit. But um, and they, to be fair, they are quite hard to edit. So my my granddad played for Coventry and Birmingham okay. in the in the thirties. 
and wasn't a particularly illustrious player or anything, but had like five, I don't know, five, six years as a professional. And he's got a Wikipedia entry. And my dad, who discovered the internet in about 2012, mm-hmm. realised that bits of it were wrong. And that's fair enough, because he was like a minor footballer. Yeah. What, 70 years ago? There's no reason for it to be accurate. But my dad's got like, like clippings and a little bit of a scrapbook of his dad's career that they've passed down through the family. And so he said to me, like, go on and make a Wikipedia account, an, ed- an editor account, and change the bit so that it's accurate, nothing major. And it's impossible. Is it? Even as, even as his grandson... It's impossible because you've got to have the citations. You've got to have them like approved by another editor. It's all it all makes sense, but you sort of think, well, the, the reason we know this is because that's his son. But you then to prove that you then got to prove like you got to bring out birth certificates. Wow. And kind of, okay. And it's so it's really intense. So that Wikipedia page is nothing to do with me, but my favourite section of it is definitely <laughs> the, the personal life bit. Just says is from Yorkshire. Listen, we're, we're going to talk about other bits within it for the people listening, but yeah, that bit is a very very key bit, and I did find that quite funny because having <laughs> being from the north, you Yorkshireman, you do carry yourself in that sort of manner. So yeah, yeah. we're we're from Yorkshire. That's who we are. But yeah, that's how that's how I introduce myself to people. People right. say. You sort of say, hi, I'm Rory. I'm from Yorkshire. <laughs> okay. But you're also Rory from the New York Times. And yes. this is what I want to know now. How did you get to this point? Because ultimately, a man from Yorkshire that ends up as a soccer correspondent for the New York Times, like, what, what's the route? Like, were you somebody that was always involved in football or what happened? Uh, to be honest, the answer really is kind of blind luck and being being in the right place at the right time. So I, I like all kids, wanted to be a footballer, but like most kids, wasn't very good. Uh, and decided I wanted to be, if I couldn't be in football like that, I might as well be football adjacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and always loved writing. So I started out in journalism as a, as a news reporter for the Mirror on the like, graduate trainee scheme. And then uh, argued my way into sport, like just, just complained as much as possible, bringing <laughs> out the real, the real Yorkshireness. Just yeah. complained as much as possible until they let me go to football matches. And then I worked for the, for the Telegraph on Merseyside, covering Liverpool and Everton for three years and then a few months at the independent in london moved to the times in london and then i had like a quite a broad beat i had a really good boss and kind of i managed to kind of carve out a bit of a niche for myself doing like the like a bit of foreign football a bit of kind of tactics stuff a bit of data stuff like interviews a little bit more kind of a quite an esoteric like beat rather than a specific patch and then i went to i managed managed to persuade them I probably complained about that as well. I managed mm-hmm. when New York City FC launched in 2015, I think. Yeah. I managed to persuade them that we should we should go to that I should go to New York for three days to do like a, a package of stories on football's rise in the States. Okay. And for some reason, and I've no idea why, they agreed. Okay. So I got I got I think it was like five days in New York. And like budgets are not in newspapers aren't what they used to be so that is that is a you know that is a big you've got to justify your existence anyway and to send someone to new york is a little bit surprising mm-hmm. um and i did three stories one on kind of how they put nyc nysc nycfc together one on mls and one on like fan culture in the states i think and in the course of that i, I met the man who is now my current boss who who covered who's the kind of editor for soccer at the at the new york times and we, we got to know each other a bit and after a while they said they wanted to they they want the New York Times sees itself as like a global news brand like the BBC or CNN, and there is an acceptance that if you're going to be a global news brand, you kind of have to meet the audience where it exists. And yeah. in terms of sport, that is football. There's, yeah. there's no, there is nothing else that competes. You can't 
if you don't have football as part of your offering, then you can't really claim to be to be a global sports report. Mm-hmm. And and that was the genesis of it, basically. So they, I've been with them since 2016, and I'm relatively unique, relatively unique, both in journalism and Yorkshire, for being someone who has nothing to complain about professionally. <laughs> I think this is this is the clever bit of what you're doing here because you say you're from Yorkshire, but you don't sound like you're from Yorkshire. So the way you're trying to, yeah, you're catching me well, on guard here. Do you know what? So my my mum pronounces the long A. She says like Bath and Castle, and for some reason, my wife, who was also from Yorkshire, also says Bath and Castle. And I caught them both saying Castle to my son the other day, and I had, at that point, I had to I had to step in and say, "Look, no, 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 <laughs> he is from Yorkshire. He will be saying Castle." So no, I, yeah, my I have a a fairly boring middle class accent. I think is probably the the best way of putting well, it. Well, at least you're honest about that. Um, so through all these years, then when you're working for those different publications, like. Who did you want to be in that space? Because obviously there are lots of different people with lots of different ideas and things going forward. Like who did you, basically, what did you want to be known as in in amongst the people who would be reading your work and so on? I don't know if I necessarily had like a clear enough vision in my head of, to put, to put, kind of say, right, this is, this is the space I want to occupy. I think it was, my, my view basically, this, is, this sounds really, really sort of arrogant and it's not meant to, but basically the way the media worked is that you've got two choices as a journalist. When you wake up as a younger journalist at like nine in the morning when you wake up, mm-hmm. or as an older journalist when you've got kids, when you wake up at like half past five. The, you can, I, if you have something that you, you are doing, so that when you have that first phone call in the morning with your office and you say to them, these are the stories I'm working on, that, that makes their life easier. Because the, the people in the offices, in, in certainly British papers, it's different at the, at the NYT, but they've got, a tough, they've got a tough life. They have to get, in, get into the office at like half nine and by 10 o'clock, they have to have a list to present, list of stories that could go in tomorrow's paper. And for all that everyone's now digi- like digital first and digital focused, you still have to put a paper out, and that is a really stressful experience. Mm-hmm. So they think a lot about the paper. You can't really break that, that strand of thinking. So the sports department will, se- will send one person to conference where all the heads of different departments meet with the editor to say, this is what we've got today. So... As a reporter, you have a choice because the, the person who's going to go into conference is going to spread that stress downward. They, they do not want to have to come up with, with stuff themselves. They want you to help them out. Yeah. So when you get that first phone call, you can either say, I've got this, this, and this to work on, or you can let them say, I want you to work on this, this, and this. Yeah. And it's much easier for you if the ideas come from you, partly because they tend to be achievable and ideas that come from your offices aren't always achievable. Yeah. Um, they tend to be stuff you know something about and they tend to be stuff you're interested in. So I kind of set, set myself the, the target, not like vocally, but subconsciously of always being able to say to them every morning, this is what I'm doing. And at that point, generally, unless it's like a really terrible idea, they go, they write it down, they go, okay. And it means they've got something to go into conference with. Mm-hmm. And that is the, is that I guess just led to me thinking of stuff that I was interested in, thinking of stuff that, I wanted to do looking at interviews with people that I thought were more, were maybe more interesting than just kind of such and such is an amazing footballer. Why are they an amazing footballer? It's something a little bit deeper. And that also meant doing more stuff abroad, doing more stuff with a broader kind of a broader beat because I found I've always been fascinated by, by football in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And I, I never felt that was something that was really kind of, that was never really a, a what's the word? Like a demand that was met by the British media, that was it was all very kind of Premier League focused. Yeah, but it was it wasn't kind of a 
it wasn't an attempt to say, I want to carve out this space for myself. It was just, this is what I'm interested in. These are the ideas that come to me. This is what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to go and write about that if they'll let me. And generally, they let you because what they want at half past nine every morning is just an idea. They don't really care how good the idea is. They just want an idea. If they, don't, if they go in with a blank sheet of paper, they're getting shouted at. Yeah. If they go in with something to sell to the editor, who often doesn't like football, oh, doesn't decent. care about football, Solid, yeah. then, then that's all that matters. Okay. And with that then, how long did it take before you got to that point when you realized that's how you can make things for yourself? I think it was, it was when I was, at the, the in, I, was only, I was at the Independent for like three or four months. Not, not by design. I loved it there. I, had, I was really, really happy. And because the independent had less money than everybody else, because they had less staff than everybody else, there was a much greater emphasis on, right, what can you come up with? And I was working with, with Sam Wallace, who was the chief football correspondent at the time. He's brilliant. One of the, one of the if not the best in the industry, um, who's very much like a self-starter in that sense. Jack Pitbrook, who's, who's fantastic as well one of the most talented like he's not not that young anymore but he was at the time one of the most talented young journalists around he had the same attitude ian herbert who you probably ran into when you were at city who, mm. who covered the northwest for the indy was is a is a brilliant journalist he's a male now um they all had that attitude and i kind of learned it that if you they didn't have the independent don't have, didn't didn't then have the staff to to have a, a like a big brains trust in the office coming up with stuff so you had to do it it was what what journalists in journalists love jargon like it, it was like a reporter-led desk. Mm-hmm. So the reporters came up with the ideas and the desk made it work rather than the desk coming up with the ideas and the reporters making it work. And I just loved that. I loved that environment. I loved that that sense of responsibility and that that creative edge. Because journalism isn't always that creative. Like I would never describe myself as a creative. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not far off at times stenography. Like you go to a press conference, you write down what people say and you, you print it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. There's craft to that and there's an art to it, but it's not, it's not a creative process. But when you're having to come up with stories yourself, when you're having to come up with ideas yourself, that's the creative element of it. And that, that bit I responded to really well. And I was lucky when I went to the Times in London that my boss there, Tony Evans, had exactly the same approach. Like he want, That's what he wanted his reporters to do. And it, it was just a way of working that, that I loved. And it's not necessarily better than the way other people work, but it's, it, was, it was the way that I found my job most satisfying and I felt that I was contributing the most to my team. You know, what's great here, you said that you'll find it tough to talk about yourself and you just, <laughs> I asked the question 10 minutes ago and you've just answered yeah, it no, like no, that. Yeah, no, no, this, well, this no. I don't find it tough to talk about myself because I don't like talking about myself. I find it tough to talk about myself briefly. That's the problem. Okay. I don't want to come across. Yeah. But this is, it's more about like, I'm, I think this is true of all journalists, that you how the media works is fascinating to us. Yeah. Journalists love talking about journalism. They just love talking about journalism. So it's not, okay. yeah, it's more that, that I, I can talk to you for hours about journalism. No, listen, I've got a lot of time for it. And interestingly then, you've talked about things which you do love, but what don't you love about journalism? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't love, well, it's hard to say without sounding like you're critical of certain outlets. I, I suppose I, I don't love the, the rush to sensationalise. Mm. I don't love the the short termism. I don't love the mixture of the the sense that you're meant to be clairvoyant because that's not really what we're meant to do. Yeah. I don't I don't necessarily love the mixture of of like reporting and punditry. I think that's that's kind of that's a blurring of the lines that doesn't really help anybody. Mm. We're not we're not like I'm not meant to be able to tactically analyze a game in the way that you are. Mm. That's not my job. I I wouldn't pretend to be able to do that because i don't i don't have the knowledge mm. i can i can tell a story 
and I can I can identify something that is interesting or a pattern that's interesting or a development that's interesting. I can do that. Um, that's my that's my skill. That's what I've been trained to do. I think it's dangerous when when journalists start kind of claiming tactical knowledge. I think is a is a is a risky without knowing what managers and players are trying to do. I think it's really risky. Um, but mainly just the kind of like the saturation of, or the not sorry, like the twisting, I guess, of everything into something that yeah. into something that it's not. The, the the need for there to be to be news, and I think if you look at like our football media culture, although it is now driven by social media and driven by digital and driven by the kind of the desire to to get clicks in whatever way you can, and in in some outlets they they do that by by providing people with the with the kind of positive reinforcement coverage of their club that they want. So yeah. if you're a Man United fan, you want to read good stuff about Man United. Yeah. That I think isn't brilliant for journalism. But equally, there's a tendency to to always think there has to be a story in something. And I think and I've I mean I've got a million calls from offices over the years whilst you're covering like a transfer saga saying what's the update? And you you say, well well not I mean this is a big complex negotiation. Grealish is quite a good example at the moment. Like it's not like they're constantly on the phone to each other. Yeah. They're not. They're not trapped in a room with each other. It's there's an element of cat and mouse about it, and yeah. a little bit of back channeling, and it will it will play out when it plays out. But I think there's a tendency to believe that there must always be an incremental update, and when there isn't, you you don't invent them. I don't think any journalist invents them particularly, but you might you might lend greater weight than is strictly necessary to a relatively small piece of information. Yeah. And that that bit of it, I think, is not particularly positive or helpful for anybody. And I think that it all lends itself to this, like, ultra-high temperature to the way the football media works, which I think is, is a real problem that, that we, we sometimes could do with taking a bit of a breath and okay. just accepting that... You don't. Not every story produces a banner headline every single day. This is this is brilliant to be speaking to you about this. This is why you know, whenever I'm on a panel with you on the BBC, like I enjoy being on with you because the stuff that you're saying is kind of like how I feel as well. Because, but some of those things which you've mentioned, we'll, we'll get to those. We'll get to those. But one one question I want to ask before that is working for the New York Times. You say it's a global institution, but obviously it's the New York Times, and you are not a football correspondent. You are a soccer correspondent. So does that affect the way that, say, maybe you do some of your writing because you know the audience ultimately isn't necessarily the type that would be getting the independent in, in England, or is it exactly the same? No, so it, we that that is a challenge, and it's 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 something I really love, and I hope over the years I've got better at it. It's still quite tricky. We kind of have to appeal to to th- almost three separate audiences. We have to appeal to Americans who know loads about football. Yeah, because there's, there's a massively, as you know, there yeah. is a massive like football literate community in the states. We have to appeal to Americans who are kind of familiar with football, mm-hmm. but not that knowledgeable necessarily. In theory, I guess we're probably having to appeal to audiences. You want to appeal to an audience with a story, yeah. And any any great football story, the football bit is is not not off to the side. It's not kind of not. It's not irrelevant, but it's it's secondary almost. So it, a great story is a great story. If you've yeah. got a good story, it's just a good story. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm writing a, a profile of somebody or a a feature on a team that's doing something weird or whatever, 
the, the fact that it's in football is important, but it, it shouldn't mean that people who don't like football at all shouldn't be able to read it. If it's a story of human interest, it's still a story of human interest. It doesn't matter what they do. Mm. I'm not particularly interested in like big business or high finance, but if, if there's a really good story about that world, I'll read it and I'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And then we also have to appeal to a European audience and, a, and a, well, a, a global audience who knows a lot about football. So we kind of have to pitch stuff to all, that works for all three of those audiences. And that's, that's different to any, that probably is different to anybody else. It's probably different even to what like ESPN do mm-hmm. or the athletic, the, the kind of the transatlantic brand, mm-hmm. because ESPN will be assuming that people reading ESPN's football coverage love football wherever they are. Yeah. Whereas we have to be just slightly aware that we might get an audience that isn't necessarily that that fluent, as you say, in in football. And it does change the way you write a little bit. But the biggest problem is that in Britain, teams are plural. Mm. So it's like Manchester City are the reigning Premier League champion mm. champions. In America, they're singular. Yeah, it, Manchester City is the reigning Premier League champion, mm. and that is. And this is five and a half years in. Five years in that's still basically impossible for me to get used to. Yeah. I, when I was uh, in Connecticut for ESPN for the Euros, we were, someone was mentioning something through from the gallery or something, and they were talking about that. And I was saying, no, it's definitely this. And I said, no, it's definitely that. There was like a five-minute yeah. debate about it. And I still couldn't get my head around it. And it's going to be very hard for me to say Manchester City is. Yeah. Like, it's just City are, that's who they are. Do you, the, the worst of it, is that they're right. I know, I know. Because it's, it's like a colloquial thing, isn't it? Or something like it's a, that. It's a collective noun. It's yeah. singular. Yeah. It's like, it's like Tesco. But they're, Listen, but they're right. Like 30% of my audience is American. 50% is from the UK. So technically speaking, yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's, every, it's everything. I mean, every, look, everybody's right. Like, yeah, it's, it's fine. Everybody's right. Just whatever gets you. The point of language is to understand each other. As long as we all understand each other, that's fine. Yeah, good luck with that. But anyway, let's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's I want you to now talk about the whole industry itself. You've mentioned certain things already, but I want to be, I want to like drill down into things and talk about this from like a, an ex player's perspective, you know, things which I would wonder about. So as a journalist then, do you think everybody in your field understands the impact that the stuff that you say about individuals and teams can have on the game and those individuals themselves? No, basically. I think people are getting better at it, but I think we, and it, it's probably journalists in that sense are probably just reflecting society a little bit. I think we have a tendency to see athletes as both, I guess, like a superhuman mm-hmm. in terms of the performance, obviously, but also in terms of being like resistant to emotion. Yeah. So I don't think it ever occurs to us that what we write might impact the player themselves. Yeah. And that. Or that our words, like you, you hear the like the old like the old cliche of well he'll have pinned up that piece on the dressing room wall, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you kind of know that's not true because like players aren't reading papers. Come on, be serious. It's yeah. what. But at the same time, I think that there's a there's a there's an understanding gap that if you, as I said as I said at the start, like it's weird talking about yourself. It must be really weird reading about yourself. Yeah, it's it's, it's well, in fairness, it's when you read about yourself and it's something which you completely disagree with. You know right, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like people love praise. People love being love being told that everything's going well. But when there's sort of like a deeper story about saga or there's information, there's sources, there's this, there's that, and you're reading it and you're like, well, that's not true. One of the issues that I had as a player, and I think lots of other people have, is that you don't really have a right of response in, imme- in an immediate yeah. nature. So I'm always wary now when we do the radio stuff and so on. If you 
want to say something about a player, if it's not going to be factual, you know, consider how you're going to say it because the player's yeah. not on with you. But the thing that you say goes out to the audience straight away. And as we've seen, as soon as time passes, sorry, as soon as the moment's there, the person could respond in a week's time, but it doesn't have the same weight as it did when, you know, when we first said it. And also as a player, I remember like people used to be made or broken on things like match of the day. And it used to yeah, really, yeah. used to wind me up because there'd be certain people who would be praised all the time. But then I remember- Nick, I, yeah, Nico Frankia. Yeah, I went on loan to Sunderland in 2010. And I thought that Titus Bramble was a really bad player because of the way that um, Match of Day had portrayed him. Like I was a player myself watching that and I got sucked in, played him for the years, really, really good player. But yeah. I was none the wiser because all I was seeing were his lowlights that were getting put on Match of the Day and things like that. And that's affecting him and the perceptions. Like I'm within the game and my perception of him was in a different place to what it should have been or could have been. And it was in, I was asking because I feel like these days, maybe some journalists do know they have that level of power. And I think like they kind of play into it or rather not journalism, not just specific journalists, but say commentators within the game of football. That's what I'll say. I think there's been a, there's been a rise of, so, the, so I think the pundits maybe are more, are more powerful now than they have ever been. Yeah. Like Alan Hansen back in the day was, was a big, like if Hansen slaughtered you as a defender, that was bad. Yeah. That was like you, you'd yeah. have a problem. And, I, and that's like you said, I've never really thought about match of the day like that, but, Someone like Bramble's a really good example. And mm. Frankia, who was a really good player, but is the is the kind of counter example mm. that Bramble basically made what, three or four mistakes a season? Yeah. And that it was like, oh, Titus Bramble is doing again, yeah, exactly. And but actually he probably was playing really well apart from that. And mm. to an extent, like that's the defender's lot. Like yeah. there's there's an element of that's just the na- that's the cruel nature of the game. Mm-hmm. Um Krankia, who I loved as a player. Basically, was the like everyone thought Crankyard was probably slightly better than he was just, just three or four times a season. He'd score an absolute world and it would be on match of the day. And you'd be like, well, Nico Crankyard's amazing. Mm-hmm. But in reality, he was probably. Did you play with him? Crankier? I did, yeah. He was good. Yeah. He, he was yeah. good. He was good, yeah. But I understand the point you're trying to make because that's like, the way he, it goes. Like, people want to show you highlights if you do something good, like, you know what I mean, that yeah, scores yeah. goals or whatever. And it's the same as if you, like, if you play really well in a really big game. He said, or even not necessarily in a big game, but like say you've got like a quite a high profile FA Cup fifth round match that's on the BBC mm-hmm. and someone plays really well. That massively impacts their reputation because you've got yep. three, four, five million people watching it mm-hmm. rather than the one million who might be watching on Sky in a mm-hmm. sort of bodge standard Premier League game. And I guess that's a I guess that's inevitable to an extent with highlights. That's kind of the nature of highlights. Yeah. But it well, didn't it hadn't occurred to me before that yeah, like you would like how much of like how much of Titus Bramble. Yeah. Like the, the the conception of Titus Bramble was constructed in the match of the day studio. I don't. That's probably that's exactly. a really that's really interesting. And with with Titus as well, having been on this side of things now, like they'll have to say that they want to put those moments up. But then the people who are watching it and so on, they think, and myself included, you think you know what somebody's like as a player, but you've never seen them play. And yeah. I think there's a there's a spot where I think for a lot, for, not for a lot of people, but for some people, they're kind of dishonest because they're portraying this sort of like knowledge of every team and every player. But if you watch, but you, nobody's watching every minute of every game throughout an entire season. But yeah, this player is this, that team is that. And you ask them, oh, how do you know that? And said, well, you know, I watched that thing a couple of weeks ago where he did this thing and you're right. like, yeah, but anyway. have uh, no, that, 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 that's, that's, a, that's kind of a separate, like trend, but it's re- it's really interesting as well. You see it a lot during transfer season. That like, so as we're recording, Spurs are about to sign Christian Romero from Atalanta, yeah. defender. 
who I, I presume I have seen play a, a, a couple of times for I, I watched a bit of Italian football in the Champions League the last couple of years. Never really, never really noticed him. Yeah. But I think between there, there, there is between the kind of availability of highlights mm. and the availability of clip of like clip together highlights of, of action, and the rise of quite easily accessible data, mm. people will now be like, "Well, yeah, Christian Romero is a great signing for Tottenham." Yeah, 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 yeah. And yep. he probably is. I'm sure he'll do really well. But there is an element at which there is there is a human part of any transfer that is that is not captured by data. How yeah. well would, would Christian Romero's wife settle in London? Yes. No idea. Yeah. And that that might well be the defining factor yeah. of whether Christian Romero, Romero succeeds. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a rush, and it's true of the media and social media in general, a rush, maybe this is the thing I dislike the most, is that the need to declare definitive judgments yes. on people yes. every single week. Yes. And one of my favorite things about my job is that we don't have to do that. We don't, it, like when I first started, I was really keen to kind of go to, like if, if City played Liverpool early in the season, you'd be like, yeah, we've got to, got to be at that game. Massive game, October the 30th, huge <laughs> game, early kind of, early kind of, what's the word, staking the ground for the title race. Massive, massive occasion. And there was one year, I can't remember what it was, when I couldn't go for some reason. I was, I was ill or my, my, my wife was ill or something. And, and I was a bit like, well, I'm not going to have to miss it. I'm really sorry. Or we booked a holiday. And then they brought out the fixtures and in, inconsiderately didn't take my, my holidays into it. It's outrageous. I know. And my boss was like, well, yeah, don't worry. Like, it's October. Who cares? Like the, and we, we now kind of have this principle that it's not a really def, defining game until February. Mm. That's when defining games kick in like if City play Liverpool early in February fine that mm. is a that is going to be a big moment in the season and it's because in the States their major leagues certainly in the baseball and the basketball they play like 160 games yeah, a yeah. season yeah there's a lot yeah That's so right. each, the, the weight of every individual game is much less mm-hmm. in the NFL every game matters a huge amount because there's so few although you do have like the wild card system that allows people to, to sneak into the playoffs and stuff the Premier League, the glory of football in general is that the season is the perfect length for every game to feel like it really matters, yeah. but not quite matter definitively. Yeah. So it's kind of the halfway house. Yeah. And I think the problem is that you, you'll see, and you'll see it this season, like there's quite a lot of big games early on. I think United play Leeds the first day, but I think Arsenal play City within the first three weeks or something, and there's mm-hmm. Chelsea City at some point early on as well. And like Those games are important. They're big events, but they're not going to decide the season. No, no. No. But there is a there is a desire within the media to declare everything. You know, Arsenal lose to City, Arsenal season over. Arsenal, mm. you know, is is Arteta on the brink? Simply Christian Romero, who I feel like I'm, feel like I'm picking on, makes a mistake in a, in a high profile game early on. He's a boss. It will be he? like he's, yes. a, he's he's a flop. Yeah. He's not settled well, <laughs> and that that will pursue him for the rest of his career in England. Mm. What, whoever, when there'll be there'll be one big signing this summer who who doesn't start well somewhere along the line, mm. and they will constantly have to overcome the impression that they are a flop but with all that stuff you're saying about say the media overall and sensationalizing most things like does that come from the people who are consuming it or is it coming from the people who are just writing it which identity changed first yeah that's a brilliant question and it's it's something i think about a lot like so i think the media are complicit in it the media has it has a duty to me not just to reflect its readership but to guide it Mm -hmm. We have to, we have to tell people what's important. So if even if people don't necessarily want, and it's one of the things that's brilliant about football is you can you can write about a lot of subjects that a lot of people won't consider 
through football and suddenly they'll think about their subject. And the, the best example may well be social justice, mm. that there'll be a lot of people who've come to that conversation because of taking the knee. They might not all have yeah. reached the right conclusion, but they, they, might be having, they might be thinking about it in a way they wouldn't otherwise. Mm. Um, the, I think it's really, the one thing I would say, the, the one kind of, like, thing I'd say out of loyalty almost to the media is I, I think it's really easy to say the media does this, the media does that. The media, to an extent, is defined by its readership. So you can complain about clickbait, or you can can, can complain about sens- sen- sensationalism, or you can complain about not not misinformation, as that's on the journalists, but you can complain about the kind of twisting of information. Mm. But that is to an extent because that's what sells. Mm. The media is driven by its market, and if we had a, I'd lo- I'd love a world where all anybody wanted to read were esoteric features about Belgian second division football. <laughs> I would be really happy. <laughs> Just writing those constantly. Okay, but there is there is a market for that transfer stuff. There is a market for kind of the the more prurient like insights into a player's life, the kind of the, the inner details of players' personal lives. So, you know, the showbiz journalism is just for a reason. Is people want to read about celebrities, mm-hmm. and I think that is too often ignored in the conversation about what's wrong with the media. Mm. The media could do more and should do more to kind of guide its readers into the places that, that they maybe should be, and to introduce concepts that that would be, this sounds, again, really kind of portentous, it's not meant to, but like educational. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the media can't totally be held responsible for the taste of its readers. Mm-hmm. That, that if there is a market for something, then the media maybe shouldn't bend to meet that market, but it's not necessarily the media's fault that the market exists. They may, might not help, but it's not, not entirely its fault. Okay, so with that being said then, if you, say, wrote a piece and it's something you're really proud of, would you rather have a positive response from the people who are involved in the game who like it and say the opposite is true for the for the readers or vice versa where the readers love it but then the players don't it it depends kind of what it's about so you you don't ever want to to be told that you've from by people within the game that you've got something wrong that you've misunderstood something Mm -hmm. that you've presented something that's not true or you've only got half the picture like that's that is bad that's not you doing your job Mm -hmm. at the same time you want readers to 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 like what you do you you need you want to tell them a story that you're kind of you're that you're convinced is right and that you believe to be true so if, if i wrote something that upset people in the game but i i felt was right that's fine. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be, it, I don't know. So I guess if you write something about like coaching or training or tactics or something, or, you know, nutrition or data, some aspects of the game, and you get a lot of people come back to you and say, look, that is, that is complete horseshit. Mm. Then, then you, you know, you've got a problem because mm-hmm. you, you've obviously done something wrong. If you write a story about I'm trying to think of an example, so at some point this summer, I might do something on, on kind of, club networks and how there are now a lot more than people realize of interlinked clubs mm-hmm. and it's because pe- people want to make money out, out basically clubs now exist to make money out of transfers yeah that potentially could upset people within the game yeah but maybe that's okay to upset people within the game about that because maybe because it doesn't mean you're them being upset doesn't mean you're wrong yes it just means that they're upset yeah and how difficult is it then because you are a yorkshireman so I think that means that you're probably going to support Leeds. That's the likelihood. I'm completely neutral, Nadam. Completely, completely neutral. neutral. Uh, do you say this uh, as a lie? Or you say this as the truth. I think no. It, 
it's it's both. Okay. No, like so you, the thing is about who you, who you support. I I have a team that I support and I want them to win games. Okay. And I want them to win trophies. Yes. But I also have a lot of other teams that I want to do well. Yes. Because I like the way they play. Mm-hmm. Because they have a player on their team who I'm very fond of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sometimes have players on on their team that I like, mm-hmm. that I know and like. They they have a manager who I get on with, or a manager who I've got a relationship with, or because they have like staff members who I've got to know over the years, and generally don't want to lose their jobs or even because you've done a story on them yeah. and you develop a bit of an affinity to them so i'm trying to think what the example it's so like napoli yeah i have i'm very clearly not a napoli fan you like just I like wasn't. neapolitano pizzas or whatever uh, Neapolitan pizzas. Well, I mean, a big fan of pizza yeah but <laughs> <laughs> and they play in a nice color but i'm not a napoli fan but the, the the comms guy at napoli is incredibly helpful to me we get on really well I know I've interviewed their owner a couple of times. He's he's kind of nuts, but he's nice to me. Mm-hmm. He's helpful. They so I want Napoli to do well. It's good. It's good for me if the two or three people that I know at Napoli who are my friends are having a nice time. So okay. I'm not I'm not like I don't cry when Napoli lose. Yeah, but there is a little part of me that's a Napoli fan, and I think most that's true of most journalists that you you support a team properly. But you have lots of other teams who you have a bit of an affiliation to, even if they're, and this is the case for me now, even if they are literally your direct rivals, there is a reason for the for me to want the team that's traditionally my team's direct rivals to do well. Which, which team are you talking about there? I'm, I'm, I, I just don't want to kind of say it out loud. <laughs> Did they wear red or am I featuring something they, else? They, they wear red. Okay, cool, cool. And they're united together, are they? Yeah. They're not. No, no, no. They're absolutely not united together. Oh, no. right. Okay. They just have an FC in the end of it. Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, they have an FC, yeah. Okay. You know, um, reading between the lines there, being the um, detective that I am, it's great that you uh, <laughs> you like these teams and you like those teams and there's people playing for this team or somebody working for that team who you like. But that is a coin. And on the other side of that coin, that means there must be people there who maybe you're not so fond of. Because uh, you didn't say you wanted everybody to do well. You I didn't. don't want everybody to do well. No, that's true. Um so. Yeah, I don't know. It's more like the, no. There's not. To be honest, there's not many people who I like actively dislike within football. But there's a you. there's a few people who I think are not great for football. And the, what this this sounds incredibly pretentious. This is the thing you've got me talking about myself, and now I'm saying like <laughs> really stupid stuff. <laughs> like I really love football. Yeah, really, I really love it in in every single aspect, and. There are people out there who I think are whose whose continued success is bad for football, and mostly it's on the kind of agent business side. Yes, I know like what you're talking side. about. Yes, there's one or two managers who I think it might be healthier for everybody if they didn't particularly perform well. I think that's not just they're bad people, just 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 kind of how they see football. Yeah, is not necessarily what I think is is a forward thinking, oh, like trying to say nothing. progressive approach. You trying to use as many words as possible to not say who you're talking about. That's, that's, <laughs> exactly. That's but there's not, but like, there's not many of them. But yeah, and but on the on the agency side, particularly, there's a couple of people who, not that I, I don't have a personal relationship with them, but and I'm sure they're lovely to their kids and their mums and stuff. But, I would I wouldn't go that far for some of the people I know who you may be talking about. I wouldn't but, I wouldn't reach that far. Yeah, I think in fact you probably have run into at least one of them. Yeah. I think that they are not good for football. And yeah. on that point of view, I um I I dislike them as a concept. Yeah, I understand that. I understand exactly where you're coming from. And to go back to something which you said a little while ago now, 
in terms of things that you don't like within football. I think this whole feel of like sensationalism, which sells and the clickbait stories and stuff like this, those for some of the journalists who are part of those other publications and the other media outlets and so on, do you think they are affect? They're making your job harder, or can you say that you're in a completely separate separate lane to them? That, well, there's an element of we all get tarred with the same brush. So, like players are suspicious. Most players are suspicious of journalists. Agreed, and with good reason, mm. because most the media, for, not necessarily this generation of journalists. I feel sorry for like young, younger journalists coming through now who are going to have to learn to operate in a in an environment basically with no access whatsoever, which has been like encouraged by covid mm. with for totally valid reasons but like the dates so why I, I started when i started i was still working with people who used to stand in car parks and just the, the players would come out yeah they'd talk to them in the car park and then everyone would go home or to the pub mm-hmm. and there were still journalists working when i started who for whom that was football journalism yeah they've mostly retired now there'll still be a couple a couple still still working but they've mostly retired um Kids, the kids who come through now, and this is me at thirty nine using the word kids, which I feel really bad about. Mm. But like they will, they will not have any of that access. We're, my generation was a little bit more in between. Like we still, you still had a chance to get to know players occasionally. Um, you could still have a chat with players. You, it would have to be like you do a formal interview, and then you'd have a chat after, and then through that, you might get to you know you might you might get their number, and you might you know exchange messages or whatever. It wasn't as close as it was in the seventies and eighties. I think it's easy for the media to say that's the oh it's the clubs it's the press officers it's you know the clubs are trying to are trying to trying to you know keep them away from us but you kind of think well hang on look to be fair like over the last 30 40 years what what has the media done to convince footballers that it's worthy of their trust mm. probably not a lot mm. and that's the the cost for all that spinning for all the all the twirling all the twisting all the clickbait stuff is that players probably aren't going to want, want to talk to you and that is to my mind pretty much fair enough and it's kind of for you as an individual journalist to convince them that you can be trustworthy yeah yeah i get that i get that 100 percent. so if you have you ever been written about uh not really like i think i did a, i did a couple of did a couple of like interviews for other website i think i did a, like maybe twice okay and how did that like, feel when you were learning about yourself through your own words well, so no, to be fair, they were both Q and A's. So okay. it was. I felt that like I, I, I like read them, and I was like, "Oh my god, you're such a dickhead!" <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't have any. I couldn't blame the journalist who'd interviewed me for like getting okay. my words wrong. I thought that in one of them, they maybe could have neatened up the the like the punctuation mark. Yeah, like the punctuation yeah, didn't yeah. help me. Yeah, I felt that that was that that didn't that didn't get me across. But okay. um, no, I couldn't complain. I I can't imagine what it would be like to be profiled it's really strange yeah you, you you occasionally have like it's not it's kind of the same it's not really the same like occasionally people will email and say that they'd, they'd like to kind of do work experience with me mm-hmm. and like shadow me for a week mm-hmm. and i have to always reply and say well i mean by shadowing what you mean is you'll come and sit in in the room in my house that i have to use an office because my office isn't yeah. is currently it looks like a like a 19th century prison cell um but and just sit and watch me like send send WhatsApps to people. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that interesting. There's not that much to to see to football journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I think that it's it's hard when you're not used to it to like to see somebody else's vision of what your life is like. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think it would be really weird to be 
I think it'd be weird to be shadowed. I'd just be literally sit, sort of sitting in a chair and they'd be on the sofa. It'd be weird. Yeah, yeah. But it would be even weirder to, to have somebody like drop into your life for a couple of days or not even that. And then be like, this is, this is, this is what they're like. And it would be even weirder. And I'm conscious when I do this, when I, when I write profiles of players, like if like people were like ringing my mum and asking her like, so what's Rory like? I have no idea what she'd say. Yeah, 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 yeah. I should, I should probably at some point like just check with her that she's got an answer to that <laughs> question just in case. And but that must be that must be a really strange experience. Like you were always described as like, is it not weird to be like described as the brainy footballer? Yeah, especially because that would be the opening thing that someone would say. But then, like, how do you firstly how do you measure that, and secondly, like, what what's the benefit of being known as the brainy footballer or whatever? And then yeah. from there, with every, in terms of everything that you say, like, to refer to something you've just said there. Think about how tight you got when you were concerned about the sort of like punctuation within something which you yeah, were yeah. saying in the Q and A. So imagine that, but over say words which you've said about certain people. Because I'm 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 one of those people. Like according to the media stuff that I've done, barring say one or two people, you wouldn't be able to know who I really don't like because I'm always trying to just make sure that I'm not seeking a con any sort of controversial anything. Yeah. I'm just trying to be as honest as and open as I can be. But there've been times in the past when I've been honest and open, and before I know it, there's like people are attacking me. Oh, how could you say that? How could you do this? How could you do that? How could you do whatever? But then I think when the person profiles you, if they miss your intent, it's horrible because you can be sitting there thinking this is great. You know, we're yeah. just having a conversation. This is great. He gets it. You know, we know what's going on, or she gets it. Yeah, everything's great. And the next thing, it's like oh, breaking news, especially in this like twenty-four hour news cycle. One place drops it everywhere's got it and you're the news for that next 24 hours people are calling you and saying what you're saying here what you're doing there and it's i'll be honest it, it's horrible but i want to know then if, if you felt sort of that feeling that say i've had and other people have had like for example i think it was three years ago someone came in was asking me about phil foden at city and i said you know i'm happy that he's at city you know i think pep knows what he's doing you know if he ends up there he needs to go and play somewhere or whatever you know it'd be good if he could go on loan to like a spurs or something yeah. blah 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 but i said well I don't, at the end of the day you know city's call and i trust them the guy wrote, wrote an article the next day saying that i told full fold and he has to demand a move to spurs <laughs> yeah and i was pressed so hard by the people back in manchester so so hard but say if that happened to you how would you react what would you do would you contact the person or would you leave it oh that's a really good question so i don't know um, I've had a couple where you write, it's, it's not, it's not quite the right parallel, but so when mm, I was gotten really well with Roberto Martinez mm -hmm. and I, I was always quite proud of it because the way that I got on with Roberto Martinez was when I, when I lived in Manchester, my beat was, I lived in Manchester, my beat was Merseyside, but occasionally I'd drop in to do City or United when, when my colleagues were, were off or needed help or whatever. But I still found time once every, like once a month, to go to a Wigan press conference. Mm -hmm. And Wigan press conferences were at either eight or eight thirty in the morning. Okay. And I lived in South Manchester, yeah. and you don't want to be driving to Wigan no, from no, South no. Manchester at that time in the morning. No. But I went because I thought, like, do you know, I, I was kind of convinced that Martinez was a good coach, and I thought he, he's worth getting to know. And it, I was right. Like he ended up going to Everton and onto Belgium. But at the end of his time at Everton, it was going sour, and I spoke to a few people around the club and wrote a story about the fact that it was coming to an end and why it was coming to an end, which the story itself was legitimate, I think. The headline was was a bit too brutal. And that sounds like a really cowardly kind of, I don't write the headlines, excuse. It, I obviously hadn't conveyed in my piece that what we were doing was reporting on what was going wrong 
at Everton rather than calling for Roberto Martinez to be sacked. Mm-hmm. And the headline made it look a little bit like it was basically why it's time to go yeah. for Martinez. And I got a text from Roberto. It was the day, last day of the season. Everton were playing. I was going to Everton's game. And I got a text from Roberto saying, I can't believe you've done this to me. Oh, wow. And it, I felt awful, like genuinely awful. Mm. And I, put, I texted him back and said, the, the headline doesn't match the piece. I realise it's a weak excuse, but you know, I, I wasn't kind of, I obviously wouldn't. It's not for, ultimately, it's not for me to say Bill Chenwright should sack Roberto Martinez. Yeah. Who, who cares what I think? Like, what do I know? I was just kind of reporting on the fact that players were unhappy or whatever. And I, that was not a long time ago now, it was seven or eight years ago, and, or maybe not quite that long. But I still feel, I mean, I still, it still makes me feel a bit, like I'm still quite nervous about that I might run into Roberto Martinez. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he's forgotten. But it's no, no, no. I'm sure, then, I bet he's not forgotten. I bet he's not forgotten. He, may, he might not have forgotten. No. Um, I, have seen, I think I've seen him a couple of times since, and he's, he's always been really nice, but because he is a lovely man. Yeah. But that was another good example. So I really want Belgium to do well. So I really want Roberto Martinez to do well. So I feel really guilty. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the, so funny. But yeah, so it's, I, I don't know. Like it's, I think if you, if it feels like you've said something that's unfair to somebody, I, I think generally I would try to get in touch with them and explain either what had happened or admit that I got it wrong. Or, and you do, you, you do get people occasionally texting you and asking you exactly what exactly what you think you're doing mm. um especially people who you get on with and like but you know there, there, equally there are times where even if you that's the other side of it is that there are times when even with people you like that you have to criticize them because that is your job mm-hmm. although one thing i will say and i've had this realization during the olympics like watching the olympics as a journalist is really weird as a football journalist is weird because everything seems like it's really soft yeah like there was, I don't know if, if you saw the rowing one where the guy forgot to steer. Yeah. And they almost crashed into the Italians. And on the BBC, whose coverage I've really enjoyed, uh, and not just because I do quite a lot of work for Five Live. <laughs> of course uh, <laughs> They were like, I think Catherine Granger was like, oh, you know, he'll, he'll, feel, he'll feel bad about that. And he, me and my wife were sitting watching it and we're like, yeah, he should feel bad. He forgot to steer. Mm. And we started talking about the way it's covered. And... My basic view was, like, if that was football, they would be getting slaughtered. Yeah. And Kate, my wife, said, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. And for some reason, that just really clicked. But I, th- I think we are way too harsh. I think it's not that the Olympics coverage should be more like football. I think football should be covered more like the Olympics. Like, we should a- acknowledge, although it's elite sport, it's brutal, it's cutthroat, I think too often we forget the human element to it. Mm. And so I'm, I've made a vow, like a midsummer vow, to be a little bit more conscious of of who I criticise and why and when, mm-hmm. rather than because you can get especially when like you do the radio and you're just some you're just a normal person like you you played yeah like you have a right to criticise people if you think someone is doing a bad job yeah you have re like you are qualified to say that I'm not not really I'm qualified to tell you that people within the game think someone's doing a bad job that's fine mm-hmm. that's that's for me to that's that's my job to do but it like what you know you're on the radio and you, they say you know what do you make of arsenal's performance i don't know <laughs> i don't know if we'll make it for good radio but i understand what you're trying to say but no, do you know what i mean like, yeah so I, I, just I get think it there's I get a, that's it. what i mean about the mixture of punditry and journalism like we we, we have it's not often i'd say this but like we have to to an extent stay in our lane a little bit mm. and remember that yeah remember that like what we say 
does carry weight and does get picked up by social and what have you. But also that that the people at the heart of the stories we're writing are people yeah. and that just because they're footballers, they're not immune to the feelings that we'd have. And it's, it, it sounds really... It sounds like a sort of Damascene conversion. It's not really. I just it, it's really brought it home from watching the Olympics that yeah, like do you know what? Do you know what? If Arsenal finished fifth next year, and that that's maybe pretty good. That's not you know why why couldn't Arteta take them over the line to fourth? It's pretty good for finishing fifth in the Premier League. That's not bad. Mm. It's all right there. And then it, it, elite sport is brutal and it is meant to be brutal and the pressure's integral to it and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But we we I think we're we're too quick to criticise and we're too quick to lambast people who maybe don't quite deserve it yeah i think some of that's probably to do with the fact that it's just such a partisan sport as well i think when we look at the olympics and stuff like that especially as i've been watching the track and field my memories of watching track and field are one where you watch it just as a fan of the sport itself and you're part of a crowd as opposed to being there solely to support this one particular athlete and every, anything else that goes on is a disgrace. If this person wins, that's a disgrace. If that team wins, that's a disgrace. You know, how dare that person do this? How, you know, it's like when someone would finish the line in a world record, everybody's standing up and clapping. You know what I mean? Because that yeah, was yeah. an incredible performance. Instead of people booing because the person that did it was from a different country who you don't like, you know, like... Or, or just declaring, like, Rye Benjamin a fraud. Yeah. Because he's in his second, yeah. Yeah. He's an absolute fraud. Oh, this guy's a disgrace. Oh, he's, he's failed. He's failed. Like, the, the um, I think the guy who finished second, or two people, actually, who finished second in the in the 400 hurdles, um, they've yeah, both, yeah, yeah. both yeah. of the broken world records, but they're failures. They're failures. Yeah. They're not good enough. This is If you're not first, you're last. It's embarrassing, yeah. and I think, oh god, that is that, that is literally the way football is. Well, it is, and I think that there's an, it's it's really easy to think that's the way it should be because that's elite sport, and yeah. that kind of second is nowhere attitude. And I I get that, and I get that for a lot of players, I think that's that is that is how you are able to become as good as you are at, at your chosen discipline. Mm. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's true. Yeah, and I think that there may be like the kind of the laughing at like the Arsene Wenger trophy for finishing fourth. Yeah. It's like a major achievement to finish fourth in the Premier League. We shouldn't be dismissing it. Like, yeah. it's, and ultimately only one team can win. So does that mean that the other, 19, the other 19 have all failed? Listen, no. You can, you can, everything that you're saying is why I like you because you make sense. <laughs> but try and, try and bring those thoughts into the footballing world and into the sort of footballing media world and people just say you're soft and that you shouldn't be saying yeah. anything. And I think that ultimately is a shame because, for example, with me, before I went to QPR, I was conditioned to think that no one should ever finish, should celebrate finishing 17th in the Premier League. No one, ever. Then I went to QPR and the relief in finishing 17th in 2012 was unbelievable. Like, it it changed perceptions about everything. People guaranteed jobs, people guaranteed salaries and stuff like this. Like, you realise how big it is. But before you're in there, you just hear one thing. Like I remember, I think it was like Gary Neville's and Jamie Carragher's being Chris Glove people who stayed up on the last day and all this stuff. And I think it must be nice when you're winning titles, but you know, there's only one title available to the 20 teams, as you mentioned. But anyway, let's move on from that. So 2013, 2015, 2017, 2019. Do you know anything that happened those years? 13, 15, 17, 19. No. Okay. So they, those were the years when you were nominated for writer of the year by the Football Supporters Federation. Yeah. Was that right? Okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And you, I think, you, I, won, I think did, you, not that you care, but, but you won in 2015 and 2019. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. So yeah. my first question, given how partisan football is, 
It's like, how do you even get nominated by a collection of <laughs> collection of fans to say that you're a good football writer? By not offending anybody. That's <laughs> but how that's do you how thing. do you do that? How do you do that? This is what I need to learn. Well, I was lucky because again, like I get to write. Yeah, I get to write about stuff that's a bit different and less tribal. Yeah, and that if you're if you're kind of wedded to one to one club or one beat, you're more likely to be associated with that. So there's there's lots of journalists who I know from my days on Merseyside who are brilliant journalists, like genuinely, like as well embedded with a club as you can possibly be, mm-hmm. who would be seen as being like shields for Liverpool. Yeah, and they're not they're just really well embedded with a club so mm-hmm. they will report on the news that comes out of that club um and i guess that the the, like the slight advantage i have is that i don't i can sp- i can like spread my offense more widely so <laughs> okay. although like man city fans might get upset with me slagging them off one week yeah a few weeks later i will be slagging manchester united off Man- 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 manchester united off and that means that it kind of when it comes time to like nominate as long as you haven't offended any any major constituency recently you're probably okay uh, that's okay. what i'd say Wait, it's, one thing I've learned since I've entered a sort of like broadcasting world is that it doesn't really take a lot to offend people. Like even every time, for example, I've been on ESPN FC, shout out to those guys, and I mention either Ronaldo or Messi, whichever one yeah. I don't mention, the other group come for me. Yeah, like I, I put uh, Ronaldo into my European Championship team of the uh, European Championship team of the tournament. And, you know, for me, I try to think through logic. So here's the top scorer in the tournament, um, you know. So I thought, well, obviously I'll put the top scorer and the golden boot winner in yeah, the yeah. team. I was atta- I was laughed out of the room. I was laughed out of the room <laughs> and people were making it seem like Messi was involved in the tournament as well and he should have been picked. And I was like, okay, cool. This yeah, is- there's, there's, you just, it's not worth, that That one, Messi-Ronaldo is worse than Rangers-Celtic. Yeah, yeah, it's toxic. And then this is... It's weird because, like, why can't there be more people that just appreciate both? I, d- I think to an extent, like, it's that it's really interesting. Like, I, I think to an extent, it's like it's performative on social media. Like, you have mm. to, you have to like wear your, you have to show that you're defending your your idol. And I think partly it's it's. I'm going to sound like a really old man now, but like stan, stan culture. Yeah. Where, and you see it in like K-pop. Yeah. Where people have to go to bat for their their particular band like it's like if you're bts you have to like defend bts all of the time otherwise otherwise you're not doing it properly and i think that's that's sort of leached through a little bit into football and mixed with the innate tribalism of real madrid and barcelona and yeah and whatever um and also people like shouting people really like shouting listen i I was shouted at for a long time for a very very long time and i'm just as i say learning that because this is uh so the host on the show dan thomas He's a bit of a wind up as well. So every so often he'll throw a question out to me, which he knows that's going to like spin me in, in, it's going to put me in some, in a really tight situation where I have to say something negative about someone, you know what I mean? And like, as I'm trying to answer it and I'm doing like my what like my word gymnastics, trying to escape this one, escape that one. I think, okay, cool. I think, I, I think I've answered that without upsetting anyone, but no, as soon as soon as the episode goes out, Twitter's active. Click, 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 click. Oh gosh, here we go. Mentions are alive. But anyway, let's, it's, but that's the other side of it is that I think now increasingly what we like, what we really like are the is the conversation around football. Mm. Like football's like a lifestyle. Yeah. And if you like people like the conversation, that's where all that stuff comes from. Like if you say, yeah, if you say something on ESPN, 
then it's a chance for other people to kind of talk about what you've talked about about football. Yeah, it's like this sort of it's punditry by one remove almost. Mm. And if you if you look at a lot of the coverage, that's what we're not actually talking about what happened in the game. It's almost like the week around a game or the you know the two month build up to the season. That's the real bit of it. Yeah, and the games are almost like almost an inconvenience. Yeah, yeah, I see which that. is a total flip from how it used to be and also what it's meant to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I just know, you know, lots of people tweet that I'm an idiot every time I start speaking. So that's that's a lot of fun. But, you know... But you're, but you're the brainy footballer. Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> and for the ESPN crew as well, I'm the younger one. So I'm the person who maybe knows more people who are still playing the game. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm twice as wary in terms of like saying something out there because people can access me. I know where they're at. So I'm not going to yeah, yeah. totally sit on the fence, but I'm going to try and give you my interpretation of what's real. But unfortunately, you know, what's that worth? Um... What's your long-term plan then? Because you've got this position, you've had it for five years. Like, what are your long-term goals? The only other person asking me that question, Nadim, is my wife. Okay, and sorry. I'll, I, take, I'll take it back then. I'll take it back then. Kidding. I'm going, go to, going to give you the same answer that I give her, that my long-term plan is to retain my job for as long as possible. Okay. And that is the limit of... I Yeah, like, I couldn't... I couldn't really... I can't complain. Like, I, lo- I love my job. I'm really lucky. I, I work with some great people and I have... The chance that if I'd thought that I'd get to the best thing about my job is that I wake up every day and look forward to working. Okay. And that it's really nice having like having it's the summer holidays at the moment. I'm having a lot of time with my little boy and it's nice going on holiday and stuff like that. But I never ever wake up and think, oh my God, I've got to go to work. Mm. And I, at the risk of sounding really cheesy, I, I really try not to take that for granted because okay. it's, it's an incredibly privileged position to yeah be in. for sure for sure that, that it does sound very cheesy you're right um and <laughs> and with that there are other i would i used to say that when i was a player so have you ever thought about trying to go and actually find a job that's within the game itself it, i think mo yeah like a little bit but i don't i think i prefer having my fantasy that i'd be good at it <laughs> whole and and un, un, uncorrupted rather than having it found having it kind of exposed as a complete myth okay i don't know i, I think like we've got journalists running the country i think it's bad enough you don't need journalists running football well, that'd be awful well i think we, i think we've passed that stage already you know what i mean if this guy's good if a journalist says this guy's good this guy's good yeah yeah there's an element of that but you, i think I, I do think if you even if so like obviously i wouldn't coach or be a scout because I don't know I don't know enough about I mean I would go and be a scout you say you don't know enough but how do you know that you don't know enough well so I don't feel as though I know enough whether I I whether there is any actual knowledge in a lot of that world Mm -hmm. is is a good question see now you're thinking about it but I've got so I've got a mate who who was a scout and an academy director for a long time and he uh he had this reputation that that, you know he'd be sent to a game to watch like the right back like go and assess we're looking at the right back go and watch the right back and he would come back every time and say, "No, the right, the right back's terrible, but the number ten, what a player! Yeah, what yeah, a player! Yeah. That's that. That is what I would do. I am fully, fully on board with the idea that I'd go to any game and be like, yeah, forget the defender, but look at that creative midfielder. That's all. <laughs> that's all I really want. Like a lazy creative <laughs> midfielder. That's all I'm bothered about. Oh so gosh, no, I, yeah. But I think if you, I think even as a journalist, you, you do see a lot of different sides to it, and you do, you do get to know kind of some of the inner machinations of the game but i think if i went to be like a technical director i am absolutely certain i would be an unmitigated disaster well what i will say is that you never know because i've seen one or two disasters in my time who maybe you maybe know less about the game than you do and they've been involved in the game their whole lives but yeah i've got i've got just a couple more questions if that's all right yeah of course it is so 
the uh, first one is to reference the the nominations in 2013, 15, 17, and 19. If you read between the lines, you realise that you weren't nominated in 12, 14, 16, mm. or 18, nor 20. What went wrong? What yeah. went wrong? Can you not work in, e- in even years? What's the deal? I think is it. I think it's a tournament thing. I've not realised that's the pattern. Uh, but maybe I miss out in years of... Maybe it's like with the Ballon d'Or. Uh, okay. it's, it always goes to someone who shines in the World Cup. Right, okay, okay, cool. So maybe, maybe I just... Maybe, maybe big tournaments, maybe just... I struggle. It's, you know, it's the end of a long season. It's... It's there's a lot of pressure. I just can't produce in those in those yeah, tournaments. Maybe that's what it is, yeah, because they are tournament years. Maybe you're just incredibly partisan in those years in terms of getting ready for like England to go and do something, or maybe not. You know what I mean? Possibly, so possibly the exact opposite. The, <laughs> no, to be to be fair, it might even yeah. No, I suspect I'm going to stick with that. I think it's just that tournaments I struggle struggle to get out of the group phase. Yeah, never mind, eh? Never mind. And I would say my last question now, based on the people who you like and don't like and so on and so forth, your knowledge of the game still remains the same, whether you like them or you don't. Do you find it easier to write negative stories about people you do like or, pe- or to write positive stories about people that you don't? Uh, I, I, like, I like writing positive stories, generally. I like, to be fair, I like writing stuff that's new. I like writing stuff that's new to me. The thing, the thing of my job that I really love and the bit that I've really missed the last, what, 16, 17 months since COVID is landing in some foreign city or, in, or like going to a game at a stadium that I don't know, at a club that I don't know and having to build something from the ground up. That's mm-hmm. what I really love about, about... They're the stories that I really enjoy. I went to... The only time I think I've been abroad on a story since covid was to bergamo in august last year about this time last year ahead of the champions league quarterfinal tournament thing in lisbon and i did a story on atlanta and i had like 48 hours in bergamo which is a beautiful place to meet people find the right people speak to them get some photos with a photographer and kind of build a story around what atalanta meant to bergamo as it recovered from being the worst hit place in italy by by the pandemic and it was really, it was a really, like, journalistically, that sort of parasite journalism perspective. It was really easy story because there's a lot of big, powerful, emotional things going on there. But it was also a challenge in that time to make sure you could do the best version of that story. And because other people would do it, and you know that as the MIT, you're, you're expected to be able to produce something that might not be fir- we might not be first on a story, but we're expected to be the best. And that pressure and that kind of blank canvas, that's the stuff that I really love doing. So I've dodged your question quite effectively. Oh, completely. I've just been waiting the, to just pull the trigger again. Please. The, I, I, if someone I don't like does something that's, that's noteworthy and impressive, I would happily write a positive story about them. Wow. If somebody I do like did something bad, I would begrudgingly write a negative story about them. I don't like... It's the same. Yeah. I, I didn't want to offend Roberto Martinez. Yeah. And yeah, okay. you did. Still and now, haunts me. You're not BFFs anymore. But, no, uh, I know. And look at him now. He's, imagine if we were still mates. Like he's manager <laughs> of Belgium. I'd be, I'd be doing his autobiography. I'd be oh, all, all for one piece. I know, I know. What were you thinking? I mean, to be, I mean, to be fair, he, he did get sacked. So, wow. I, I, I was right. I know, no, it's because you got him sacked. But anyway, let's, let's <laughs> you know, let's not get, let's not let the truth get in the way of that story. But yeah, that's, um, that brings today's episode so close. I want to say thank you very much. And I've had lots of different perspectives on the show from players to staff to 
ownership to directors and stuff and to have the sort of journalistic side of it now with you and to be thoughtful journalist journalism as well it's like it's good it's good there's hope out there there's hope out there just I've not really enjoyed it yeah just not every you know even number every odd number yeah. whether it's 17 19 21 23 you're great well, those are the years. Yeah. I'll, I'll probably. Oh, no, I'm going to disgrace myself at the 2022 World Cup. Don't oh, okay. I can fully believe it, mate. I can fully believe it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And have a good day. You too, mate. Take Cheers. care. Bye. So there you have it. Thank you very much for listening. And be sure to let me know what you thought about Rory, today's episode. And what type of journalist you think you'd be if you had the chance. The handle is kickback underscore Nadem and links to me can be found in the show notes like always. Thank you to producer Ryan Hell for making all of this possible as it's been an incredible two years. And also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't done so already as there is plenty more to come. Bye for now. Bye.